Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. In just a minute, we're going to be on chapter three of the book of Shemot. We kind of rushed through the Rashi on verse 16 last week, so we'll start by doing a non-rushed Rashi on verse 16, and then move into verse 17, which is going to have no Rashi, and then 18, where we're going to spend a good amount of time on. Again, Book of Tov, good to see everybody. Here we go. So verse chapter 3 of the book of Shemot, verse 16. Again, we spent a lot of time on the verse itself, but we had, I think, Su Chesroni, if I'm not mistaken, read through the Rashi rather quickly. I'll remind you of the verse. Still working on the placement of the microphone with respect to my book. Hold on a second. So the verse, which is the first verse of the fifth aliyah of the book of, um, of the Parsha of Shemot, Lech Asafta. This is, again, if we had to graph this in grammar class within, you know, several different quotation marks in terms of who's speaking, God is um, speaking to Moshe and saying, this is what you should say to um, the, the Israelites. And then, and, and one of the quotation marks, now go uh, and gather, Lech Asafta, and Zikne Israel, the elders of Israel, Varmartalehem, and say to them, quotation mark, Adonai Eloheavotechem, the God who is the God of your ancestors, Nira Eli, appeared to me, Elohe Abraham, Elohe Yitzchak, Yaakov. Actually, I, I interpolated Elohe in there, uh, which is going back to what we discussed last week by accident. Elohe Abraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, lay more, saying, another quotation mark, what did God say when God appeared to me? You should say to the elders, Pakod, Pakadati, Etchem. I, it's a weird tense, I have verily remembered you or taken note of you. We talked about the fact that the pakad could be purely remember. It could also have to deal with numbers, taking account of. Uh, and those two ideas are related themselves, um, but more, more so in Hebrew than in English. Ve'et ha'asui lachem, and also that which is being done to you. We spent a lot of time on how to render that gerund of asui, b'mitzrayim, in Egypt. Okay, I don't want to re-interrogate uh, the verse, not that it doesn't deserve it, but we at some point want to move forward. Um, we spent, I don't know, a good 20, 30 minutes looking at the shot of the verse and then read a rather quick Rashi who focused on something that we were not, um, had not been thinking of until Rashi brought it to our attention. So Rashi focuses on et zikne Yisrael, this phrase which we're going to hear throughout the Torah, where Moshe gathers, you know, the, the, the kitchen cabinet, as it were, of elders, this is really the first time we're hearing Moshe as a leader being asked to speak to the executive committee at right, the board of trustees, the Zikne Israel. And Rashi gives us an answer, um, which uh, kind of has within it a question or, or he gives us an answer and then he tells us what the question was and why we shouldn't have read it a different way. So what's Rashi's answer? Miyuchadim liyeshiva. Who are these Zikne Israel? They are ones who are miyuchad, special, but special um, in the sense of being identified as a unit, already being um, uh, pointed out. Um, remember, the word special in Hebrew, miyuchad, is from the root yachad, yud chet dalad, which means together, having been joined, having been, um, uh, like, uh, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Uh, I guess identified, identified as a specific group, liyeshiva, for the purposes of meetings, right? Yeshiva here does not mean a yeshiva, but these are the group of people who um, were starred as those who would come together for significant meetings. And then Rashi explains what he's thinking, the im tamar, and if you should say, meaning this is, this is the problem I had in the verse, Rashi tells you, zikenim stam, that it's just, you know, elders. Meaning, why do I, Rashi, feel the need to say that these Zikinim were predetermined, pre-selected, already existing as a group? Heachef Sharlo. How could it have been possible, even for Moshe, even for Moshe uh, with God's help, God is about to do some pretty uh, crazy miracles, Lesov Zikinim, to gather all of the elders, Shal Shishim Rabo, of 600,000 people, right? A, a Rabo is a a biblical and rabbinic number, which means 10,000. Um, so 60, 10,000 is 600,000. That's the midrashic 
kind of fantasy number of how many Israelites or how many male Israelites or how many male Israelites of a certain age left Egypt. How could you gather all of those Sakanim? Okay, and he, this is from Masechet Yoma, chapter, uh, page 28. So this Rashi is either a something or a nothing. If it's a nothing, he's just telling us, um, you know, you should have in your mind, reader, that by the time Moshe gets back into Egypt, there's already a board of trustees. There's already a group of elders such that he could identify um, and bring them together. Um, and then I guess the question on the question is what I had you thinking about throughout the week. I don't know if you remember to is why does this matter? Like why, why does Rashi, who does not always open his mouth, pipe up here? Why is it significant for him that we understand that from the moment Moshe goes back into Egypt, the category of Zikne Yisrael already exists. He could have just left it. And, and, and none of us would have thought that Moshe was gathering every single um, elder in the, amongst the Israelites. We would have thought that he would have pulled it together right then, right? Why is it significant midrashically that we think that the group already existed? So that's the question I want to um, put out there for uh, this group until we move to the next verse. Anyone have any thoughts? If no, yes, Barbara. I, I think in every group that we ever are a part of, there's always a group that, that leads it, that the leader asks their opinion. So it doesn't seem wrong to think that he would have a group of, quote, elders or trustees, as you put it, or whatever you want to call it, there to, to be his assistants, to, to help him make decisions and to help him get the decisions carried out. Yes, and what's interesting about this read from the Talmud that Rashi's taking is that they they predate Moshe's leadership, right? So just just play with that in your mind a little bit. Number one, Moshe, whom the Israelites enslaved either might not know of or might suspect as being an inside job because of his growing up at the palace or something like that, is coming back from the desert and saying that... Um, uh, and gathering the elders. And he's not gathering his team. He is speaking to a team that already exists, according to this read, right? So on the one hand, it introduces perhaps um, an authority, if not conflict, an authority intrigue between Ziknei Yisrael, who were already um, appointed, that was the word I was thinking about before, um, and a new leader. And I, I can't prove this point, but I, but this is what kind of lingers for me when I think about uh, this line in the Gemara that Rashi quotes. Um, there are several places in rabbinic literature, including in Perkevot, where the rabbis fantasize about things that existed before they were needed. There's a famous Perkevot about 10 things that were created, um, you know, along with creation, and they existed in the ether until humanity or the Jewish people you know, had to pluck it so that it didn't didn't need to be created then it was already there this notion of like being primed for key moments so i wonder if something is going on on that level here as well that the israelites enslaved for hundreds of years not knowing that moshe is having this experience in the desert not knowing that god is about to redeem them they already had a committee right? that committee was already formed a group of elders was already there, kind of ready and poised to receive redemption no matter when it came. And the reason why that might, um, that might be what's going on here, at least why Rashi is concerned about that, um, I believe will, will become a little more apparent once we get to verse 18, which if we get to today, we'll be able to draw that connection as we talk about the relationship between happenstance, accident, and priming a pump, uh, a pump for a significant encounter. Um, and having said all that, it also could just be that there's not something nearly as big going on in the verse. And Rashi just wants us to imagine that, you know, Moshe didn't have to do the job of gathering the elders that were already there. But something tells me there's a reason we're supposed to be thinking of the fact that the elders are already there. Uh, Norm and Rachel, first. So your hand first. Yes, thank you. Um, two things. One is, as for the verb, uh, Zilberman translated as as, as Hashem has visited you and seen your treatment. Um, but what I wanted to say about the elders is Rashi very frequently is trying to identify 
ambiguously or unidentified people. And so the Zakanim, there's a natural question that arises that one of his students may ask, just who are these elders? And he says, yeah. oh, this is just a group of leaders that, you know, the Jews had that were running things. That was sort of their legislative body or their board of trustees, as you characterized it. Um, to this day, there are organizations that refer to their leaders as elders, whether or not they're old. And even with right. us, I think it's Ben Zoma who turned gray as soon as he joined the, the appropriate council. So um, I think he's simply saying, oh, the elders, they're an existing group of leaders of the community. And that it doesn't necessarily mean that they're Alta Cockers. Thank you, Norm. Yeah, good. Larry, Diane? So I think the, <clears throat> I agree with you in, in your interpretation of Rashi, but the structure of the break of the, of the verses makes it hard to see that. And I know you don't want to go too far ahead, but if people will simply look back at the conversation and look forward a little bit, so God is going back to um, the beginning of verse 15. So God speaks to Moses. Um, and he says, you must say to the Israelites, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then he says in the beginning of 16, go gather the elders and say to them. <clears throat> now, the rest is what God is telling him to say to the elders. And yet continues in the next verse, which we're going to read in a minute. It's all one long sentence. And it's, I declare I will take you out. And then it concludes at the beginning of verse 18 with God saying to him, not to, to Moses, not to, the, not to tell him what to say, they will take you seriously. So it's very clear to me that if we had put in one verse what God had told Moses to tell the elders and that, and then start and say, they will take you seriously, he's basically saying, you've got to work through the existing system. And by virtue of the fact that you're going to promise them that we're taking you out of the land of Egypt and taking you back to Canaan, that's where you will get your credentials, your authority, et cetera, from. So, so then, then Rashi's comment is reinforcing the fact that Moshe is bringing this message not just to Nachschleppers, but to people who, who, um, um, who, who will actually need to be convinced of your authority in order to follow you? He's a political <laughs> operative. He's telling them how to operate in the political system. Yeah. Yeah. Great. And um, also the Rashi, the Rashi is in verses 18. We'll, we'll use some of the language in that verse to explain why the elders who apparently were appointed to this position were naturally inclined to trust him, even though there were plenty of reasons not to trust him. I'm thinking that, you know, the, 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 the Jewish relationship with boards and elders and committees is is an interesting one, a fraught one, right? On the one hand, it's 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 the way to lead, um, and it's the way to have an in, in impact, um, and it's you know it's both a great honor and, and and the bane of one's existence when someone asks you to be on a committee. One, at one point years ago, I saw a um, an interesting alternate uh, alchet, um, uh, in addition to the alchets that have the machzor, and one of the alchets. I forgot exactly how, to, how it was listed, but for for endless committees, right? The allocate for for sitting on committees just for the purpose of sitting on a committee, right? A, a lot of a lot of um, ingenuity and vitality can kind of die in committee work, but the notion that you have a group of people who are selected to make significant decisions for you know the Jewish people has been around since this verse, as it were, right? This this is the first committee, uh, Diane. Yeah. So I want to just make a link between verse 15 where God says that his name is God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And now when Moses is addressing the elders, these, these, whoever, um, he's going to talk about the, using the, he's going to use the same name. And it's almost like um, maybe there's, if you think about the people who have been enslaved and maybe have lost some of their historical memory, there's a group that has preserved the historical memory and they still know God by that name. And maybe others don't. Mm. Mm. Great. 
I really, I really like that. I, I had not, con- I had not thought to connect the presence of the Signaeus or ale with, with the name by which God is choosing to introduce God's self here. Great. Uh, I think it was then next Joanna and then Barry and then Rebecca. So it's interesting if I remember, and I know we don't want to look ahead too far, but if I remember the story correctly, um, it appears here that the instruction is for the elders to accompany Moses to Pharaoh. I don't think they, that they end up accompanying Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh. I think they do have a meeting with them shortly after this, but in my recall, at least of the Exodus story, all those times it's Moses and Aaron going alone in front of Pharaoh, not with the elders. And I wonder if there's like an instruction in leadership being trying to be passed on here where, you know, it's about, you know, Moses, you can't do this by yourself. You need to have this, you know, cultivated group of leadership to assist you and to help relay the message to the people and to be your, you know, ally and ambassador and bringing the message forward. And I wonder if that gap is what presents itself in Parshat Yitra when this whole concept of additional leadership is revisited. Mm. Mm. Yeah, um, we'll have to remember some of that when we go through Parshat, um, Vaera, and Bo, um, because also without like trying to think about it, I can't recall specifically whether or not the Zignaeus Rael are ever actually there in that moment with Pharaoh. Um, but they are, but 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 they're called they're called to authority or called to task, or Moshe is told by God to call them to authority to task beforehand. And that's a lovely linkage, Joanna, to the message that Yitro, it's almost like, it's almost as if I never thought about this, that Yitro's message to Moshe, Yitro, the man, his message to Moshe about gather, about having, um, you know, committees of people to help uh, get the work done and delegate is reinforcing a subtle message that God gives to Moshe in our verse. Right. And, and, and that, Maybe that midrashic expansion highlights that God was trying to tell that to Moshe. Moshe, there is a structure. Work through them, as opposed to just you know randomly go back into Egypt and, and gather some old folks. There's a structure. Go through them. That's that's a wonderful connection, Joanna. Thank you for that, Barry. So I'm picking up on uh, what uh, Rashi's doing and um, uh, on focusing 600,000 males. So how many is the total population? And uh, God's telling Moshe that Moshe's going to tell, well, uh, God first tells Moshe, Moshe, go, go tell Pharaoh stuff and such. And, and then Moshe responds, um, uh, how 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 am I gonna how am I gonna w- 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 the people are gonna ask me how 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 are we staging this? Are we doing a movie? Mo- Moshe's coming in. He's he, he's a stranger among the people, and we've talked about the, 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 the there's a pre-existing structure of some kind. He's coming in from the outside. God's telling him to go in there. Uh, how is he? How was he announcing his presence to this huge number of people that he's bringing? He's a shliach of God coming in, and all, all God says is, "I will be with you." Um, well, we, we but from as a single person walking in on this huge swarm of people spread all over the place. There are no microphone systems. There's no Zoom. Um, how is he announcing? The significance of his presence as Schlich of God with this with a message, uh, and, and and now uh, he's going to talk to the elders, uh, and and then we uh, again the problem of quantity of people in one person who's not recognizable as a leader. Now how how does a Schlich of God historically um, come in and speak to the Jewish people? I'm still trying to figure it out myself. Um, uh, Barry, I heard most of that. At some point, the audio went in, in and out, so I may have missed some of the subtlety there. But yes, it is. Um, uh, our, our, our people have always tried to figure out how prophecy gets promulgated, right? We, we talk all the time. If Isaiah were alive today, would anyone listen? Right? Like, or some people might say there are, there are Isaiahs out there who sound crazy and we're not listening to them because we are 
suspicious of people who speak in God's name, right? Aren't you? Aren't, aren't you all in, in some ways properly suspicious of anyone, whether rabbi or, or, or person raving on the street who, who, who actually asserts or of, avers that they are speaking in God's name? So it's actually very hard uh, in, in, in our era, uh, unless you're in a, in a really, really a fundamentalist society, which has its problems, it has its effectiveness and its problems, to be announce yourself as shliach of the divine and, and be listened to. Uh, uh, please, uh, 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 just lo- logistically, aside from the recognizability issue, logistically, uh, these uh, huge, more than a million people spread all over, a single person coming in, there's no system to communicate with. Uh, how does this one person's mouth voice uh, announce to more than a million people spread all over the place? How is that done? Yeah. Yes. Good. Right. And that also goes forward to what Joanna was saying in terms of um, Parshat Yitro and the notion of delegation, just um, l- more shoulders to carry the message and to carry the task. Thanks, Barry. Rebecca, and then we're going to read the next verse. So what I what it what I wanted to say kind of touches on a few of the things that others have said really already, but um, it that interpretation of Rashi um, speaks to me in terms of describing what the Israelites were like in Egypt. That contrary to our image of a of a people that are enslaved and therefore have no congregation or no community really. It's pointing out that they were in Egypt uh, still a community and not just um, individual slaves. So unlike more modern day slavery. Great. That's a really salient point, Rebecca. There's plenty of, of Midrashic material that tries to understand the phenomenon that after centuries of slavery, there was still a coherent people to be redeemed. We talk about this all the time. How many enslaved peoples? Whether you apply 3% or 83% to the historicity of the story, there are plenty of enslaved peoples in the ancient world who were never heard from again, right? So the rabbis in different parts of the Gemara imagine, oh, it's because they, they didn't change their names when they were enslaved, or they kept Tarat Mishpacha, they always went to the mikvah, or they kept you know, one aspect of Shabbat, Shabbat, and that preserved them. And these are the rabbis trying to figure out how it does an, a people without power and a people without um uh, agency preserve itself enough so that when there's a redeemer, there's something to be redeemed. Listen, lahavdil elaf havdalod, which is a rabbinic way of saying, you know, what I'm about to say is, is not one millionth, uh, you know, in, in scope to what we're discussing. But Jewish leaders have been wondering for the last 13 months or 14 months, how do we preserve a community through pandemic so that when there's a redemption, there's still someone to be, there's still a coherent group to be redeemed. What does it mean to be Temple Beth Am 24 months after the last time Temple Beth Am met in person, et cetera, et cetera? So uh, what you're referring to, um, Rebecca, and what may be happening in, in this very short Rashi that we're still lingering on is yet another way of explaining how they organized themselves and preserved themselves and perpetuated themselves such that when the person they didn't know was going to arrive, Moshe, comes, there, there's a system. You can, you can draw them out, right? Uh, and anyone interested in the notion of the Jewish people continuing to, um, to, to be a, a coherent people through the vagaries of, the, of modern existence and the absence of the shtetl uh, is interested in, in, similar, in similar things. H- how do we uh, preserve a system such that there's something to actually be transmitted, not that we're oppressed, um, but... but because Judaism is an iconoclastic tradition, we're always being challenged by the external forces to remain something that, um, that actually exists in a coherent way. So thank you for that, Rebecca. Okay, let's go read the next verse of Torah. Um, Joel, haven't heard your voice today. Do you want to read verse 17 and you'll get a twofer because there's no Rashi on 17. Romar, um, and say, I will go up um, to them 
um, from um, the Ane is uh, the poor people or the uh, affliction of the uh, it's, it's, it's of the latter, right? It's 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 the 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 vowel under the aleph is a chataf kamat. Sorry, the ayin is a chataf kamatz, meaning that it really should be oni with a with a long o, and oni means aff- affliction, like lechem oni, right? So not necessarily impoverishment, but affliction, right? It's the same root as the verb that tells us to fast on Yom Kippur, ve'initem et nafshotechem, you should um, afflict your souls. So the noun is oni, long o, but because of the way this word is structured, it gets shortened to a soft o, me'oni, Mitzrayim. And then go back two words, Joel, and read a'aleh, you have the right root, read it as he feel causative rather than... Oh, um, I, will, I will raise you up? Correct. Okay, um, from the affliction of Egypt to uh, the land of the Kna'ani and the Chiti and the Amari and the Prizi and the Chivi and the Yuzi to a land flowing with milk and honey. Good, okay. Now, the hardest word to make sense of in the verse in terms of the syntax of the sentence is the first one, not because we don't know what the word Ba'omar means, but it's hard to know what it's doing there. So the, the Vav of Ba'omar is probably Vav Ha'hipuch, Connecting, you know, connecting this word to the previous idea, the word Omar, without the vav hahipuch, is just I will say, Omar. Uh, in modern Hebrew, you wouldn't say I will say as Omar, but in biblical Hebrew, Omar, uh, you might say that. Well, I, 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 I don't know if Vera Zan, she, she will tell us if, if it's ever used that way in modern Hebrew. But va Omar means and I said. So God is still talking, and God has just told Moshe to, to gather the elders and tell them that God had appeared to me, Moshe, saying that I'm going to lift you, I'm going to remember you. And then the question is, so what, talk about quotation marks, what does the and I said mean? It might mean that God is telling Moshe to tell the elders that God appeared to Moshe, and in that appearing to Moshe, tell the elders that I, God, said, I declared. Right? It's actually really hard to translate um, and, and make it make sense of the flow, even though we know exactly what's being communicated. What's being communicated is that the elders have to be told that God had said, not only have I seen Pakod Pakati, have I taken account, but I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to take you out of the, uh, um, of the, of the experience. So um, I want to just compare... Uh, a few translations that deal with that word again, whose basic uh, meaning we know, but what, what it's doing there structurally is a little more interesting. I'm going to show you um, how Everett Fox reads it. So Everett Fox uh, reads it this way. Um, I'm going to read from verse 16 because you have to read it in flow for it to make sense. Go, this is the last verse, gather the elders of Israel and say to them, yud heh vav the God of your fathers, has been seen by me. That's the Nira Eli. He really reads it as a passive. The God of Abraham, of Yitzchak, and of Yaakov, saying, Lemur, I have taken account, yes, account of you and of what is being done in Egypt, comma, beginning of verse 17, and I have declared. So the Omar is within that last quotation mark. God telling Moshe to tell the elders that God had appeared to Moshe, and in that appearance, God declared, and I have declared. That have declared is, is an interesting addition uh, in the English, like suggesting that, that uh, it's, 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 rem- it's remembering something that God had, had said. Um, JPS translates it uh, a little bit differently. Um, I'll read it because I happen to have it. If I can get there quickly. JPS reads it like this starting with 16. Um, Go and assemble, gather, the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me and said, I have taken note, that's Pakod Pakati, of you and of what is being done to you in Egypt. And I have declared, actually, it's verbatim. I forgot, I didn't realize that. JPS translates this exactly as Ever Fox. And I have declared, colon, I will take you out of the misery of Egypt to the land of uh, the Canaanites, etc. Um, 
I see a couple of hands up and uh, let's see what people have to say. Either, I don't know if you're talking about, about Omar or something else. Renee and then Larry, Diane. So Saperstein translates it uh, and it starts the sentence with a capital and. I have said, I shall bring you up from the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite Hittite Amorite. Says the uh, invite and Jebus to a land flowing with milk and honey. I have said, okay, so it's a slightly different than declare, but more plain because the root Lomar does mean to say or to speak. Good. Larry, Diane? Well, first, the translations, <clears throat> punctuation, um, which makes the point that I tried to make previously. So Alter, going back to verse 16, puts the quotes um, <clears throat> of what it is God is telling Moses to say, Quote, I have surely marked what is done to you in Egypt, and I have said, I will bring you up from the abuse of Egypt in the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite to a land flowing with milk and honey. End quotes, end double quotes, and single quotes. And I won't read it because the quotations are exactly the same um, in um, Kaplan. In, Ka in Kaplan. But this is all part of what Diane was trying to say as well, there's a secret password and the elders know the password. And how do they know the password? They know the password from the, what God told Abraham way back in um, um, chapter, um, in chapter 15 of Bray Sheet. And they know it from what God told Jacob when he was going down to Egypt in chapter 46. So God has passed these messages along. They've been passed along to the elders. And so if you say these words in the quotations, they will say, ah, this guy is the real thing. He's got the code, the password. Good. So remember that on verse 18, because Rashi plays around with this notion of a password. And then there's something not in the Rashi. I'm, I'm saying it out loud, so I remind myself to say it, that um, that kind of it's a gloss on Rashi uh, that doubles down on the significance of um, not only the password, but something about um, Moshe's life story that was organized in such a way so that he would have this particular password and, and they would listen. So good. So you're, you're Baruch Shekivantem, you're kind of anticipating Rashi on verse 18. Um, anything else on this verse, um, which again, uh, Rashi is quiet on um, everything else that, uh, Joel translated was exactly right. Um, anything else, Joel? Well, I mean, I'm. The thing that stood out to me is 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 this one eretz or is this two eretzes? Aha, eretz haknani, eretz vachlavudvash. And if it's if it's the same eretz, then what is the significance? Is he giving like the good part of the eretz and then the bad part, or the bad part and then the good part, or? What's the significance of the two different descriptions? Yeah. Um, it's a good question. I never thought about that before. I'm uh, Based on your question, I'm interested in how Uncleus deals with it. Um, so this is hard to say. It's hard to actually say out in English in this grammatical point. Um, Eretz means land. Ha-Eretz means the land. Makes it a definite article. But once you add Eretz Haknani... Like um, you have rendered Eretz as definite once you add in the Ha of Knani. So even though you don't, it doesn't say Ha Eretz, it's if in Smichut like this in Hebrew, if the second word, which modifies the first word, is definite with a Ha, then the whole phrase is definite, right? So it's El Eretz HaKnani Vehachiti Vehamari. It's not just a general, it's not just the concept, the platonic land. It's a very specific land. Okay. And then in the second mentioning of it, El Eretz Zavat Chalav Udvash, Eretz is not definite. There's no Ha. And it's not Eretz Haz, um, um, Eretz Hachalav, right? It's not, it's not made definite with a, with a definite article, but it's somehow made definite by its description. Why is it interesting? Unculus translates the first one um, as La Ara. Al, the um, Aleph, Resh, Ayin in Aramaic is interchangeable with Aleph, Resh, Tzadi in Hebrew. The Tzadi turns to an, an Ayin in Aramaic. So land, not definite, and not 
la'ara haknani, or hachiti, just araknani. But in the next one, for the land flowing with milk and honey, Uncleus translates it as le'ara with an aleph at the end, and the aleph at the end of an Aramaic noun is a definite article. So for some reason, on the second mentioning of Eretz in this verse, Uncleus adds in a definite article, which is not, it's implied in the Hebrew, but not present in either one, and he only puts it in in the second one. I have no idea why, but your question um, like you know, brought my attention to it. Is, are we supposed to be imagining this as, as I think we all understand the Pshat to be two different descriptions, one um, kind of geographical and one, you know, uh, topological or, ge- or, or, or botanical or um, uh, of the same land, or is this somehow being, uh, you know, describing two adjacent uh, uh, territories? I think Jewish existence understands it as the first one, but, um, the, the absence of the definite articles leaves a question out there. Um, let's see, Sue and then Tova. Well, maybe I missed something, but the, I, the, they're not they're not mutually exclusive descriptions of this. Um, you know, there it's not as if it has to be um, one land or two land. You know, they're, they're being occupied um, and and flowing. Um, tells you kind of why it's occupied by all of these peoples. I, I, they're not mutually exclusive ideas. Not at all. Oh, you're saying that um, the first one tells you where to find it on the GPS and the second one tells you why it's oh. populated by so many people because it's a rich and good land? Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Good. Uh, Tova? I'm not sure of this because I'm not sure of the date of Onkelos. Could you... What? 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 Uh, when does Uncle estate from? I think first or second century CE. First or second century CE. Okay, that's interesting. Um, now I was just thinking that it, it could reflect a difference in perspective uh, because at the time of coming out of Egypt, the land that we're talking about is the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites. They, they are dwelling there at that time. And the land flowing with milk and honey is a land to come. It's the promise of what this land is going to become to you. But Uncleus looking back, that being the land of Hittite, etc., that's in the past. That is no longer truly characterizes the land. It has become now the land of promise in which at that time it was a rough time if it was the first and second century CE, but at least Jews had been living there for quite a long time and it was their land and it had delivered promise in various ways. Mm, interesting. Um, I, I checked briefly. The, the absolute historicity of the authorship of Targum Unclus is not, can't be completely ascertained, ah. but most people believe him to have lived um, from the early part of the first century till the sec- early part of the second century CE from about 30 35 to about 120. Right. So he, so his lifespan actually um, spans the destruction of the temple. Right. That's the case. What I don't remember though, is when he is, when he's understood to be, had been converted because he's understood to have been a Roman nobleman oh. who converted to Judaism. He's a proselyte. Huh. Um, uh-huh. But I don't remember if he converted pre or post destruction. Right. Um, obviously he wrote, he wrote his commentary after that conversion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's interesting. It's an interesting thing to think about. Although I think we can't, uh, we'll, we'll never uncover a whole lot of certainty with that. Right. Interesting conjecture, though. Um, uh, Barry and then Norm and Rachel. Uh, 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 two sets of comments. I want to comment on the Eretz, and then I want to go back and comment on the Almar. Uh, um, uh, uh, the the and, and Joel, thank you for raising this. I hadn't really thought of it before. Uh, but the, the 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 second Eretz without the definite, it, it brings to my mind. Uh, uh, the, the the poetic uh, uh, Zohar, the, the the river flowing from Eden, uh, will will flow here. You're 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 going to the Eretz where this where this flow will be for you. So it's a different kind of Eretz um, being described in in the second set. Going back to the the Omar, um, the, the 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 immediate previous instance of God saying something about. Um, coming up out of Egypt um, was in, in verse 15, 
this idea of the proof of something happening in the future, right? That, 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 that's, that's two different ways of understanding the Ha'ot. Rashi gave two answers to that, right? That is, is the oat, the magic of the burning bush, or is the sign that's coming, the fact that you're actually going to do this. You'll, you'll, you'll realize then that I was speaking the truth now. Right? But, um, but that, that's what God is saying. I've, I've already said this. Yeah. Norm, Rachel, and then Rebecca, and then we'll have Joel read verse 18 and see if we can get into the Rashi's there today. I think Moshe is, is promising the elders that I'm going to take you out of this narrow land that is geographically inhospitable, except for one very narrow valley, spiritually inhospitable, and completely based on an economy dependent on large numbers of slaves. Not only B'nai Israel are slaves, but many others are slaves. And so he's going to bring... Uh, God is, he's telling God will bring us out to the land that's occupied by these six nations who presumably are living there reasonably harmoniously together as more or less equals. And so you'll be able to fit in and you'll be able to thrive there because it is such a nice land flowing with milk and honey. So first he identifies it as the place with these six nations and then adds it is a land with milk and honey, which means we're going to be able to fit in among those other nations and thrive with them. At least that's how I would understand this verse on its own. That's a wonderful comment, Norm, and it brings us back, as I think Larry put in the chat, or Larry and Diane, to verse 8. And I think someone said something like this then, which is in verse 8, um, b- before the description of Eretz Zavad Chalavud Vash, it doesn't... Um, uh, it's a description. It describes it as tova ur chava, good and wide, right? The opposite of of a meitzar, of a narrow place. Um, this idea of of <laughs> what was it's just a wonderful and, and almost um, paradoxical political idea that one of the things that made this land um, more desirable, more of a place that the Israelites would feel comfortable trusting Moshe to take them to was that it was occupied, right? Lowercase O occupied. People were there and thriving on it, right? That's of course the, you know, the, 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 the bane of the Zionist project in the last hundred years and 2000 years. Others were there, right? We believed we ought to be there. Others were there. So you're reading it that the notion that others were there is a sign of saying, see, it's a good place. People, people are living there and that's why they don't need slavery in order to live there. It's, it's, it's a really interesting comment particularly as you think about what the word Mitzrayim uh, means. Thanks for that, Norm. Rebecca? So I wanted to say basically the same thing, but I just wanted to point out in addition that there's a parallel here going from Oni to Zavat Chalavudvash and then Mitzrayim, which is the people in Egypt and the other uh, community, uh, peoples of, of Canaan, but basically the same, the same idea. Very good. Oni is the antithesis of Chalav and Vash, right. Uh, letter Rebecca. In comparing this to verse eight, I was just noticing in verse eight where it's God speaking to Moses and first, you know, kind of making the sales point that it's a large land and it's flowing with milk and honey. And then by the way, there's the Canaanites and Hittites and everybody is there. Whereas now in this verse where he's saying, and this is what you should tell the people he starts with the Canaanites, the Hittites, kind of the reality, but he makes sure to have a strong close to end with, but it's a <laughs> land flowing with milk and honey. So that's what you should end with when you speak to the people. That's good. Good. Right. The, the order is reversed. I had not picked up on that either. Wonderful. 
oh, I love studying Torah with you folks. You, you see things that I could read the verse, and, even, and Rashi could read the verse a hundred times and not see it the way, you, the way you see it, which is why studying it with other people is such a, a satisfying experience. Lovely. Okay, Joel, please read verse 18, and we'll at least dip our toes into the Rashi, which we've already kind of anticipated a bit. Vishamu lekolcha uvata ata uvizignei Israel el melech mitzrayim v'amartem amartam elav anai lohe ha'ivrim nikra elen alenu v'atan alchana derech shloshet yamim b'midbar v'nizbecha la'adonai la'eloheinu. Okay, it's a long verse. There's a lot going on in this verse, so let's break it down into a lot of vavayipuchs. Yes. And um, they will listen um, to your voice. Yeah, um, I'm going to pause you for one second just to point out an interesting unculus. So you translated exactly right. They will listen. You know, it says uh, they listened. It's haipuch likolecha. Unculus translates it as vikablun lememarcha. Same idea, but different words. They will accept, they will receive your words. I don't know, like they're perfectly good Aramaic words for listen and voice. He changes listen to accept. He changes voice to your 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 words, your speech, and I'm not sure why. He didn't didn't have to do that, but there's got to be a reason. Keep going. Um, and you will and the children and the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt, and I don't know what that mem is, but you will say right. You right. So it's a. The, it's not amartam as a direct object. It's amartem. You plural will say, um, and here it's very confusing. Um, it looks like a vavaypuch, but it's not because if it were a vavaypuch, it would have to be translated as "and you said." Right. It actually is. Tra- it's translated the way it looks, and you will say it's a vavhachibur, perhaps. So you plural will say to him, right. Um, um, Hashem, the God of the Hebrews, um, was called or appeared to um, to us, um, and now let us go um, a journey of three days in the uh, wilderness, and let us uh, worship um, God, our God. And the let us is very interesting. Let's just think about the words let us in English. Let us operate sometimes specifically and sometimes almost as a grammatical construct. Sometimes let us means we're asking for permission. Sometimes let us just signifies momentum. Let's go. When we say to a group, let's go, we're not asking permission. We're saying, you know, yalla, yalla, right? It's almost like, you know, in modern Hebrew, um, you can say, you can you can say let's do something by putting that verb in the past tense. Halachnu, which means literally we went, means colloquially let's go. Okay. Here also the nelcha can either be Moshe being told by God to say to Pharaoh, like permit us to go, or we're going. We we we, we actually are going. Nah, we're going to do it politely. So it's actually present as a question mark as to whether or not what's being communicated here is a certainty, a, a directionality, or a request of permission. Right? Um, I want to point out one more thing in the Unculus, and then I see a lot of hands, which is great, because it's really a fascinating verse. Just look at how Unculus translates Elohei Ha'ivri'im, the God of the Hebrews. He translates it as Elaha de Yehuda'e. So already by Unculus's time, Again, there's an Aramaic word for Hebrew, but Unculus says, no, what, what, what is referring to here is the Israelites. And so Unculus reads back into that word, Jews, which obviously is anachronistic, but that's the way he wants it to be understood. Yehuda'e, which is clear that by the time Unculus lived, the notion of the people who inherited this tradition self-identifying themselves as Yehudim is already present. Um, okay. So a lot of hands. Let's hear from people we haven't heard from yet today. Rich, uh, Rick, and then Elon, and then Rebecca. Hi. <clears throat> well, um, it's trope-based, of course. Um, Uvata has a pazer on it. Mm-hmm. It's the fr- 
I, I just checked it. It's the first Pazer of the book. Um, and it's the first Pazer of the book of Shemot? Yes. Wow. Okay. Um, so uh, Aharon Ben Asher, whoever put it to music, really thought that this was an important word. Um, and it's singular. And then Atah is also singular, the Zikne Yisrael. So I think it's a foreshadowing that Moses is just going to go there by himself because the other ones, the uh, the elders aren't going to make it. They're going to get scared. Um, the next time you have a Pazir, there's two of them in a row in chapter four when they're not going to believe the signs. So I just thought I'd throw oh. that in there. But um, there, there's a real emphasis on you shall go. Um, and if Moses heard him right, he would have said, well, just me, uh, just me. But um, anyway, that's what I... Right. And since not everyone knows the Torah, Rick, um, musicalize your point by, by, by just reading from Bishamu and give us, the, give us what the sound of that uvata would sound like. Bishamu lekolecha uvata Ata. And every Trump system's uh, Trump's a little bit different. I learned a, an even more dramatic pazer from my teacher in Connecticut in the in the 80s, and it would be it would be bishamu le kolecha uvata. Right? If you do it, if you do a pazer slowly, it takes a long time. Um, and I love that you pointed out the interesting grammar of the word ata, because the way Hebrew grammar works is that. In a past tense and a future tense verb, you don't need the pronoun because it's 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 it's, it's built into the verb. So uvata already means and you will go. Singular. Uvata ata means and you you will go, and uh, you can an- you can answer it grammatically or you can answer it midrashically. Grammatically, you could say why is the ata there? I mean, it's hard to know which is the chicken, which is the egg here. Since the verb is singular, there had to be a singular pronoun uvata ata. Vizikne Yisrael to go along with you, whereas in the next part of the phrase, it's a plural verb, the Amartem. You're reading it much more interestingly, which is that it's some kind of an indication of Moshe's loneliness and isolation. Uvata ata, yeah, Vizikne Yisrael too. But this, this is this is on you. Great, um, Elon. Yeah, what struck me in this um, in this line is a three day journey in the wilderness. And it, it kind of ties in a little bit to what Norm suggested in the previous verse, which is you're going to go to this great place where all these people are living in peace. And by the way, it's going to take you three days to get there. It's kind of a classic bait and switch and, and may explain why the Israelites uh, got uh, pissed off pretty quickly when they realized that uh, it was going to be a lot more than three days. And I'm, I'm curious, is, is there another explanation for this? Yeah, so it's, it, it's a really great thing to linger on, right? If we, if we had to stage this, do we imagine that God is telling Moshe to gather the Israelites and say this to Pharaoh, and that the only ones who are listening to that are them, or are the Israelites, are the Israelites listening to this? Is this, is this the same message being given to the Israelites? Well, because remember, the, Isra- the elders are there when Moses is giving this message to Pharaoh. Uh, um, conceivably, right? Or it seems that way, but not necessarily all the Israelites. Is this, is the three days in the journey, let's, let's ask it this way. Is a tyrant more likely to release slaves forever or more likely to release them for a little outing with the assumption that after the outing, they'll come back. And once we're out, we're not going to come back, right? So is this rhetoric? Is this strategy? God says, Pharaoh is not going to just let you go to Canaan, right? I'm telling you, you're going to Canaan. You tell Pharaoh that you're going out for three days. Get, you know, we haven't, it's, we haven't been out in a while. Let us be out. We'll come back. We promise we'll come back. Or is this somehow, as you're playing with Elon, um, a message that the Israelites are going to imbibe, which is that this, they're not headed for a 40-year journey. They're headed to somewhere else, amazing, three days away. I think in situ, it seems that this is specifically the message that Pharaoh needs to hear to potentially let them go, even though we know that he's not going to let them go. We know that because we know the story, and we know it because we're going to get in a verse or two 
God saying he's not going to let you go. Um, but it could also be understood as uh, messaging to the Israelites that what they're about to do is not some generational journey, but just a small little outing. Um, and even the three days, right? So let, let's say it's just a reference to getting, um, you know, getting to Sinai, right? It took us seven weeks to get that far. So I'm not sure what is three days journey outside of Goshen, but it's not a particularly interesting destination. Um, Rebecca, I think, and then Vered, and then Joanna. So um, when I, the, this, the whole in, uh, atmosphere in this sentence is kind of um, surprising to me. It feels like, first of all, the word nikra, um, they don't say nigla or kara lanu, but nikra, it's, I might be interpreting this too much from um, the point of view of modern Hebrew, but it's like God just happened on us. We didn't go searching for him. It's, you know, he happened upon us. We're going to go out for three days. So it, it all sounds like, um, and again, maybe I'm reading this as a mother of teenagers too, like just tell him something and we'll figure it out later. But it's mm-hmm. the whole atmosphere is kind of um, let's just make this happen and let's not make a big deal out of any one of the elements. God just appeared to us somehow surprisingly, and we're going to go for a couple of days and see what's up with that. Yeah. So it's interesting to read the Nikra Alenu as language to play down the significance of this departure to Pharaoh. As we, we get next week, we won't get to it today. Rashi will play with the Nikra Alenu on a bigger level in terms of what does it mean for God to appear to you accidentally, not because that was what um, that was the language that would somehow convince Pharaoh to let them go, but because that's what the that's what the that's what Moshe experienced it as. And um, I'll just give you a little heads up because Rashi's not going to go there, but we'll go there. The difference in Hebrew between Kuf Resh Hey, a happening, and Kuf Resh Aleph, a calling. Vayikra right? el Moshe, the book of Leviticus, is a, a direct, intimate calling out. Kufresh hey is basically the opposite of that. It's just something that happened by accident. And Rashi is going to Rashi is going to play with that a little bit. Um, let's finish with um, I forgot the order. Vered and then Joanna, and then we're pretty much out of time. Vered lo shumim. Yes, okay. I am. I'm now. I I unmuted myself. Boker tov. Okay. Um, a few comments. Language. Language. Language-wise, so when we have a combination of the verb shama and the verb call, regardless the tenses, it's often translated as to obey. When we have those two together, so it's not just to listen, but there is also the understanding of to obey. So they will obey. To they will obey and da 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 and and this what will happen. Um, the same pasuk, of course. Uh, two other comments. Uh, first, with the word nelcha. So nelcha has a command. It's in grammar called cohortative. It's a command form, and it has more than just say yalla, let's go. But it is a command. Okay, we ought to go. Um, to this journey. And as for the verb nikra with the hey, in this case, it's not translated to be even a Hebrew shoresh. We have a shoresh like this in Hebrew, but it's translated more as an Aramaic slicha, uh, something from the region, the knanim. This verb in the region language mean revolution, like hitgalut, like mm. the verb nigla, gala. So it's not to happen, and it has a, a different meaning as the shorashim from the ancient people living in, in this area. Toda, Vera, toda, toda. We're gonna, we may go back to that uh, comment tomorrow, because I'd, I'd, never, I'd never come across that. I, I want to hear more about that. Um, Joanna, last comment of the morning. I know often like when we connect to the past, we connect, you know, through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but there's huge resonance in this parak with the story of Hagar, I think. There are phrases here that are so redolent of that chapter, um, starting with, you know, 
preceding um, uh, Hagar being sent away, when uh, we have that same Shoresh where God pakod Sarah, God noticed Sarah, and then Abraham is told in the same language we have here, Shema Bikola, and mm-hmm. also that God heard the voice of Hagar's son crying in the desert. And I, there's a paradigm here of the, like the experience of the one slave and the experience of the nation of slaves. And I'm also wondering about, similar to the comment that was posted about Soviet Jewry in the chat, this whole notion of bringing in the elders, the elders who remembered those stories from the past, who would be able to connect to the stories from the past and draw strength on them for the present. Yeah. That, that Hagar association is very, very rich, Joanna. Um, yeah. I'm going I'm to be thinking about that for quite some time. Hagar as a pre-paradigm for Israelite, um, enslavement and then redemption and and having the voice be heard beautiful 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 you have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from temple beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative judaism in los angeles if you enjoy these podcasts we invite you to write a review on the apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts for more information about temple beth Am, los angeles go to tbala.org 